I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scripture to Genesis 33 this morning. Genesis 33, as was just read a moment ago. In Genesis 33, we have the record of a family reunion. Now, most everyone enjoys a good family reunion. Notice the qualifier there, good family reunion. And at the family reunion, all the brothers and the sisters and the aunts and the uncles and the cousins gather together with grandpa and grandma for the holiday, for the wedding or for the funeral or whatever the case may be. And in some cases, a lot of time has passed since everyone was last together, for the kids are now grown up and the adults have grown old. But the family bond makes time and distance melt away. And there at the family reunion, everyone catches up with shared memories of what used to be and of stories of what has happened since the last time you were all together. And we enjoy a good family reunion. In Genesis 33, twin brothers Jacob and Esau reunited after 20 years of being apart. But this was a difficult family reunion Because back in Genesis 27, Esau swore that he would kill his brother Jacob. He would kill his brother for stealing his birthright and for stealing their father's blessing. And so Jacob fled to live with his uncle Laban. Rebekah, the the twin boy's mother, promised Jacob that that she would send word to, to Jacob when his brother's anger had passed, and she would send word to Jacob and ask him to return home. But alas, Rebekah never did that. So Jacob concluded that Esau's anger remained, that Esau was still a threat to his brother Jacob. But nonetheless, Jacob knew that God wanted him to return home where he belonged, and so the unavoidable family reunion and the improbable reconciliation was at hand. So from Genesis 33, I've prepared a a message simply titled, Reunion and Reconciliation. Let me pause briefly for prayer. God in heaven, we want to follow you by faith, even when the days are dark and the road is rough. Lord, we're uncertain of the future. We know that you are a good God, that you are a sovereign God, We know that you have a purpose and a plan for each of us, and so it's our commitment to obey you and to follow you by faith. I pray that you'd go before us now as we study this account in the life of Jacob and Esau and how you reconciled them by your grace. For I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to conduct our study this morning in duplicate. That is, I would like to first work through the narrative and and give you a simple structural outline. And then I'd like to work through the passage a, a second time and offer three principles of application for us from the life of, of Jacob and Esau. But we begin in Genesis 33. We resume the account in Genesis 33, verse number one. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. Number one in your notes, Jacob was focused on Esau. Now Jacob was focused on Esau because 20 years ago in chapter 27, verse 14, Esau vowed to kill Jacob. Now Esau was coming to meet Jacob with 400 men. What else or what other could you focus on? But if only Jacob had lifted his eyes just a bit above Esau and those 400 men, above the threatening circumstance, and focused on the Lord. 
It was in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12, that Jehoshaphat prayed to the Lord, We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. In Psalm 121, the psalmist prayed, I will lift my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord. And you see, Jacob has just had a mountaintop experience with the Lord in Genesis 32. Remember, Jacob has just seen God face to face in Genesis 32 as he wrestled with God to to gain God's promised blessing. And yet now, the very next day, as it were, in chapter 33, Jacob has come to a point of conflict in his faith, and, and his faith is tried, and he sees the circumstance before him, namely his his brother slash enemy slash nemesis Esau. And all Jacob could see was Esau. If Jacob would have only lifted his eyes and focused on the Lord and said, God, you crippled me so that I am now helpless. And God, without your intervention, without your protection, I am now hopeless. But you promised, so I will trust you. Look at verse 1 again, the the second part of verse number 1. Um, 400 men are coming with Esau. So Jacob divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants, three groups. He put the maidservants and their children in the front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Folks, Jacob is a jerk here at at this point. He is dividing his family by favorites. And he's offering up the least favorite family members to the front line to face the wrath of Esau. And then he is sending the next favorite family members forward to face the wrath of Esau. And then finally he's keeping his most favorite family members, Rachel and Joseph, to the back of the entourage to protect them from the pending massacre of Esau and his 400 men. Of course, we shouldn't be surprised by this because this was the mode of operation for this family for a couple generations now. But look at verse number three. Then he, Jacob, crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Folks, what just happened here? Jacob as a jerk, nonetheless did the right thing, and he went to the front of the the line first, and he found that Esau hadn't come to this reunion to kill Jacob, but in fact to forgive him. Jacob was forgiven by Esau. If I might continue reading verse 5, and he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, and they and their children bowed down, and Leah also came near with her children. They bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. I, I wish we could know of all that was said at this point in this reunion. And surely there's a rush of emotion and some very meaningful words were probably exchanged, part of which I'm sure was Esau saying to Jacob, welcome home, brother. It's good to see you. It's been so long. It's been 20 years. I forgive you for what you did to me. Please forgive me for threatening you and driving you away. But there is some dialogue that's recorded for us beginning in verse 8. Then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. 
Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present and my hand, and as much as I have seen your face as though I have seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. Have you ever played that game? Perhaps you go out to lunch with a friend and uh, your friend offers to pay for the meal, but you object. You say, no, 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 don't you pay for it. Let, let me pick up the tab. Let me pay for lunch. And, and then he insists, no, I insist because I invited you to lunch. And back and forth you go until at last you concede and you say, okay, okay, I appreciate that. Next time it's on me. But the whole while you're, you're hoping it turns out like this, right? And, and, and you're glad that, that he paid for, for lunch. That's what's happening here. Verse number 12. Then Esau said, let us take our journey, let us go, and I will go before you. And Jacob said to him, my Lord, know that the children are weak, the flocks and herds which are nursing are are with me, and if men should drive them hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord go ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord and see her. And Esau said, now let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. They're going back and forth. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Whatever is happening here, I, I, I think we can be sure of this, that Jacob is favored by Esau. Just great magnanimity and generosity on, on Esau's part. And after some initial negotiating over all of Jacob's peace offerings, Esau's offering to have Jacob accompany him to Seir. And Jacob makes some excuses. And Esau offers to provide Jacob with additional help, uh, manpower on, on the way. And it's, it's notable here how magnanimous Esau is toward Jacob. Beyond forgiving Jacob, he's... He's embracing Jacob, and he's supporting Jacob in every way. And folks, just quickly here, I think there's an important lesson for us to learn that full forgiveness goes beyond saying, I'm sorry. Genuine, sincere, full forgiveness follows up with gestures of of kindness and help and generosity. And most often when we forgive someone, we, we simply say, okay, fine, I forgive you, whatever, Right? That's not the spirit that we we read here. Finally, verse 17, And Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, um, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there, and he called it El Elohe, or uh, Israel. There, verse, verse number 20, or, or God, the God of Israel. And if, if you followed this, Jacob didn't follow Esau. But Jacob went a different direction. Seir and Succoth are in different, opposite directions. And so I would simply title this that Jacob went far from Esau. And ultimately, Jacob settled in Shechem on the west side of the Jordan River in Canaan. Shechem was the place where Abram first camped when he arrived in Canaan. Back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 6, a place between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And there he built an altar and he worshipped God. Okay, so then... 
what now? Or a question I always like to ask when reading the scripture is, so what? The, the so what question we might ask, what does this teach us? And on the macro level, we are tracing God's providential leading of the patriarchs toward the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. But specifically, the central theme of this episode is the reconciliation between two estranged brothers. And there are differences of understanding in the development of this reconciliation. One view is that Jacob acted wisely. We can say that Jacob acted wisely in, in sending gifts to his brother Esau because reconciliation demands restitution. And if you're going to reconcile with an estranged bro- brother, you must give gifts. That demonstrates a true spirit of contrition and conciliation. And, and the, the gifts that Jacob gave were the, the key to Esau's spirit of forgiveness. And we understand this at some level, men. If you have wronged your wife, you must bring flowers and chocolates and diamonds, you know the drill, right? And, uh, and that is wise. Others are going to say, no, Jacob didn't act wisely. Jacob acted shrewdly. And his family is divided, and then he bows down seven times repeatedly. He's giving gifts excessively, and he's, he's like that pathetic husband who's desperately trying to make amends for his, his wrongs, but he's behaving manipulatively here. He's trying to buy Esau's favor because he feared he was a, a dead man. A dead man. And, and once again, whether Jacob's acting wisely or shrewdly, Men, we understand this. If you've wronged your wife, you always bring gifts of flowers and chocolate and diamonds, and we know the drill. And and so these things resonate with us. However, I would suggest that it's not only that Jacob acted wisely or shrewdly, but perhaps Jacob was indeed a changed man. Remember Genesis 32. That was our study last week, and perhaps... Jacob was genuinely a changed man. Now, he still lived in this tent, this old man, and the residue of his flesh was still prone to revert to his old ways. He was learning to trust the Lord and follow the Lord, but sometimes he still walked in the flesh and not by faith. I I shamelessly declared him to be a jerk at one point here in the narrative, and he was trying to fix the situation so as to survive himself and He tried to manage the damage in the flesh. But I'm going to opt for that final interpretation from from that approach. Maybe Jacob acted wisely. Maybe he acted shrewdly. But maybe he was a changed man who was still struggling with right responses and right approaches, yet living in the flesh. And I would offer you then these principles to help us with our interpretation and application of this Old Testament narrative. Number one. God can bring reconciliation even when our faith is weak. God can bring reconciliation even when our faith is weak. It was with fear and trepidation in the flesh that Jacob went to meet Esau. Now, I I want you to to continue looking at the scripture here and follow some some insights. In verse 3, Jacob approached haltingly. He bowed down seven times, as was common in the ancient 
court protocol, but if you can picture Jacob walking forward and stopping and bowing and nervously taking a few more steps and stopping and bowing like, like a, a child's game of, of red light, green light, if you remember that, that game from your childhood. In verse number four, though, Esau didn't care about ceremonial decorum. He didn't stop to assess the situation with reservation, but rather he ran forward and he hugged Jacob the way people do when they've been apart for 20 years. My mind imagines the scene of, and you've all seen the, the, the videos or the, the YouTube coverage and, and such of soldiers greeting their families after returning from deployments. In fact, in my mind, I can play this in slow motion, the enduring bear hug and the tears that are full of, the, the eyes that are full of tears of, of joy and they embrace and you can see it there. What a difference between Esau and Jacob coming together. The the contrast can also be seen in how Jacob and Esau addressed each other. Look at the end of verse number 5. Jacob referred to to himself as Esau's servant. In verses 13 and 14, if you look there, Jacob addressed Esau as my Lord. On the other hand, how did Esau address Jacob? Verse number 9. Simply, my brother. And then another contrast is in the giving of gifts. Jacob pressed Esau to receive gifts. There's a unique play on words in verse 11. If you look there now, Jacob wanted Esau to take my blessing. Now, it was not possible for Jacob to return the birthright blessing that he had stolen from Esau 20 years earlier. But Jacob wanted Esau to have some portion of that fruit, of that that blessing there in verse 11. But in either case, I'm sure the meaning of Jacob's gesture was not lost on Esau. Esau said, my brother, I have enough. Keep what's yours. And in spite of all of this pathetic, dysfunctional groveling about by Jacob, in his lack of faith, God brought reconciliation nonetheless. And that's a work of God's grace. In fact, your eyes on the scripture text again. Look at verse 5 and verse 11. Jacob's family, Jacob's possessions, verses 5 and 11, were God's grace in Jacob's life. Do you see it there? Graciously, how God has dealt with Jacob. Look at verse number 8. Jacob urged Esau to accept the gifts in order that he might find favor is how my English translation translates it. It's the idea of grace in his eyes. Jacob wanted to exchange the substance of God's grace in Jacob's life for Esau's grace in Jacob's life. And even though Esau didn't want Jacob's gifts as payment for forgiveness, in verse 10, look there, Jacob says, If I have found favor or grace, take the gifts anyway. Folks, here's the bottom line. God is the one that must work in our hearts to achieve reconciliation. It is a work of his grace. It is not the payoff of man. And all of the charades that we might perform and all of the payments that we might make and all of the penance that we may do are, are pathetic. But what God, when, when God changes a heart, it is a beautiful picture of his grace. In fact, I believe that Esau's grace toward Jacob was such a picture of God's grace to Jacob. Look at verse number 10. Jacob says, In as much as I have seen your face, 
It's as if I am seeing the face of God, your grace toward me, your forgiveness of me. Many years ago, I counseled a Christian couple whose marriage was hurt by infidelity. The woman had been unfaithful uh, with another Christian man, and the, the husband welcomed her, her back, his wife back, into their home, wholly forgiving his adulterous wife. It was then a couple months later when the husband saw, next saw the other man, and I was there, and I watched the husband walk up to the other man and embrace him through weeping and say, I forgive you. Are you kidding me? That can only be explained as God's grace. Was that the, the success of a pastor's counseling? No. That was the work of God's grace in the hearts of people. Another occasion, I was a boy. I've told you this story. It's a favorite story of mine from my childhood. It had such an impression on me. My dad was, was a pastor, and a lady in our church passed out while driving her car down the highway due to some medical complications. She crossed the median, and she struck another car head-on, killing the driver. The driver of the other car was also a member of our church. And both the, the woman and her family and the man and his family were members of our church. And at the funeral, I remember as a boy watching the, the woman who drove the, 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 the car slip into the back of the auditorium at the very last minute trying not to be noticed. However, the new widow saw her. The widow saw the woman whose car had struck and killed her husband. And she got up, she went over to her, embraced her, and said, I forgive you. And the funeral proceeded as planned. Are you kidding me? Who does that? That is a work of God's grace in the lives of people. Reconciliation is a work of God even when our faith is weak. And so many times people have told me, I've told myself, you don't understand what they've done to me. There is no way that'll ever be made right. It'll never work. There's no hope. Leave it to God. And trust his grace. God can bring reconciliation even when our faith is weak. Secondly, I'm going to argue, we don't need to use deception in order to follow God. Esau invited Jacob to accompany him to Seir. And Jacob hemmed and hawed with all sorts of foolishness about the vulnerability of his children and his animals. So Jacob says, go on ahead and I'll catch up with you. That's a lie, Jacob. And Jacob, that's your problem. You are a chronic liar. Verse 14. Well, Jacob had no intention of catching up with Esau and Seir. Rather, Jacob went to Sukkoth and settled there. And then he moved to Shechem, verses 17 and 18. Many times we are invited to participate in something with something that is different than what God has planned for us. Maybe it's an invitation to a party that you know is no place for a Christian. And, and, and so... You, you, you make an excuse and you, you're dishonest and you lie. You use deception and, and perhaps you say, no, I, I don't think I can go with you because I have to. I'm, I'm some lame excuse. We're so fearful of telling the truth. And Jacob and Esau's reconciliation didn't demand that Jacob go live with Esau for the rest of his days. They could still go their own ways. That's appropriate. In fact... God had instructed Jacob to go back to Canaan, back to the promised land. 
And why didn't Jacob simply say, no, Esau, I need to go a different direction because God has directed me in this direction, but yet using deception in order to follow God as some effort of the flesh. Then a third principle, a takeaway here, so we conclude, God is the source of peace and prosperity. Whatever Jacob did, right or wrong, in the end, he acknowledged that God was the source of peace and prosperity, and so consequently, he built an altar to God. He called the place there at the end of the chapter, the end of verse number 20, he called the place the altar of God, the God of Israel. Who was Israel? Well, Jacob was Israel. Remember, his name was changed back in chapter 32. What Jacob was doing was affirming that the God who appeared to him at Bethel in chapter 28, the God who appeared to him at Peniel in chapter 32, was indeed the God who granted peace and prosperity to him in spite of everything that he had done. So this is both my thesis, my premise, and my conclusion. It's there at the top of your notes. Those who have received God's grace may be sure of the same when seeking reconciliation with others. And there may be a relationship in your life that needs mending, maybe in the home, maybe on the job, maybe here in this very church. What gives us the courage to reach out and to seek reunion and reconciliation? May it be the person and the promises of God. May it be his grace toward us. I'll conclude with, with one final story that I've, I've also shared before, but again, just a, a powerful memory that I have of my childhood as a boy living in New Jersey. We, we had neighbors who were very difficult. Anybody have difficult neighbors? And they blared their loud music in their yard if we were eating out on the back patio. When we asked them to turn their music down, they turned it up. And then they later put earplugs in our mailbox for us to use in the future with a note. They threw eggs at our door. They vandalized some things in our garage. They poured cans of Campbell's soup in our swimming pool. And needless to say, they were not good neighbors. My dad had us pray for our neighbors, as Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. And then one day, my dad gathered us together to take a plate of Philadelphia sticky buns, which were a thing out east, Philadelphia, New Jersey. Uh, We we, we brought a plate of these Philadelphia sticky buns to our neighbor's house. We marched across the yard, and at that door, at their door, my dad apologized to them for the difficulty we had been as their neighbors, and he said he wanted to be good neighbors to them. Of course, I didn't want to be there, but my dad was the spokesperson, and I had no choice. But would you believe it? That simple gesture resulted in the lady, the neighbor lady, bringing us a plate of tomatoes from her garden that very afternoon, and we never had any more trouble with that family. I don't know if you have a bad neighbor. I don't know if you have a pending family reunion. I don't know if there is some reconciliation to take place, but I know this. As God prompts you, God's grace will be sufficient for reconciliation in our lives. The account of Jacob and Esau is a remarkable account 
of improbable reunion and reconciliation. Yet God's grace was sufficient. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for the reconciliation you provided through your son, Jesus Christ. And even as you have forgiven us in Christ Jesus, may we also always be prepared to forgive one another. Lord, you've given us a ministry of reconciliation because of the gospel. I pray that you would embolden us, help us in these same matters, knowing that your grace is greater than all our sin. For I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.